for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. What we want to be able to do is to be able to better diagnose types of epilepsy on MRI scans. We want to be able to better predict how patients are going to do for epilepsy surgery and what factors will influence whether patients become seizure-free or not. Hello fabulous humans. Today we are talking to the marvellous Sophie Adler from UCL Great Ormond Street Hospital and Cambridge University Hospitals in the UK, who is telling us all about her multi-centre epilepsy lesion detection research project and how this enables neurologists and neurophysiologists who do our EGs to more effectively identify brain lesions through machine learning. And yes, we are talking big data here, aka a lot of information. Stay tuned and if you would like to learn more about epilepsy and epilepsy research each and every week, make sure that you subscribe to the channel. If you're already a fan of the channel, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review because it makes a huge difference to us. Also note that you can now access more information about our guests for free via toryrobinson.com. See the links below. Thank you for having me. My name is Sophie Adler. I'm a part-time postdoctoral researcher at UCL Institute for Child Health. And I'm also a um, academic foundation doctor at Cambridge University Hospitals. And I co-lead the Multicenter Epilepsy Lesion Detection or MELD project as well. So it's another one of those very long titles with uh, which needs more syllables. Can you tell us about, about your work, please? Of course. So the MELD project, um, which stands for the Multicenter Epilepsy Lesion Detection Project, is mm-hmm. a project about trying to detect abnormalities using techniques such as artificial intelligence um, on MRI scans in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. And, and how, how does that work? I mean, so you've got your leadership role, but how many people are on the team and what's involvement like from the patient side? Uh, so I co-lead the project with Dr. Conrad Wagstall and we set it up probably in 2018, so number, a few years ago, and we have 22 hospitals worldwide that take part in the project. Oh, great. And initially we were working on one particular type of epilepsy, which is where a part of the brain hasn't formed correctly and causes a structural brain abnormality. And these, it's called a focal cortical dysplasia. And these abnormalities can be very, very challenging to see on an MRI scan. Um, And in fact, 30 to 50% of patients may be, their MRI scans may be initially reported as being completely normal, when actually there is this subtle abnormality somewhere. And the, the real challenge is finding it because if you can find it, you can surgically operate and remove that area of the of the brain and you can um, seizure freedom rates are around 70%. So that's really what we've been trying to do. And we have a um, one of our studies, we had over 600 patients in it with this particular type of epilepsy. And we had radiologists from around the world from these 22 epilepsy centers would draw on the MRI scans where the abnormality was Um, And in some of them, they were very subtle and had been missed many times before. And then we trained artificial intelligence algorithms to try and identify those areas 
um, of the brain. And we've just released that algorithm now and uh, hospitals worldwide can download it and try and use it at their centres. How exciting. How, uh, you mentioned 20 odd countries. Do, can you tell us which countries were involved? It's 22 surgery centres. It's not, it's not 22 countries. We have um, a few centres in the UK. We have um, a lot of centres across Europe. So um, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, Germany. Um, and uh, we have Finland. We have Brazil. We have America. We have China, uh, Australia. And I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but yeah, lots of, lots of places um, across the world. Brilliant. And so to speak sort of like layman's terms, I know you said those were like focal cortical dysplasia, but can you put that into sort of like layman's terms? What does that mean for everybody? So say somebody like with temporal lobe epilepsy or, you know, things like this. To what patients does your work apply? Focal cortical dysplasia, this particular type of abnormality, um, is the most common cause of drug-resistant epilepsy in children. So it's, it's an important cause in children. It, it also affects adults. It's a, around the third most common cause in, in surgical cohorts and people who've had op- operations, um, about a third of them, or sorry, the third most common cause is, um, is this, this type of epilepsy. Um, it's different from, uh, for example, hippocampal sclerosis or, or other types of epilepsy. So we focus so far just on this one particular structural abnormality, which is, um, and now we're kind of moving forward with the project and we're starting to expand and we're running a, a new study which invites um, patients with multiple types of drug-resistant focal uh, ep- epilepsies, so um, including things like hippocampal sclerosis. Oh, wow. It's like the, your diversity in your work, which is, which is fantastic. How will the work that you've been doing already and is upcoming how will that benefit patients directly? I know that you said it's, it's going to certainly remove um, all of the seizures um, statistically for 70% of patients, but how else will that impact, positively impact the, the lives of these people? So what this tool, which automatically finds these abnormalities, what we're hoping for it to do is that it will help radiologists find these abnormalities on MRI scans. So we released the tool uh, about a month ago and we ran a workshop to train clinicians and scientists about how to how to use it. And so far, we've had six hospitals using it um, uh, as a research tool to find these abnormalities. And so the, the types of way we see it helping patients is that, um, for example, if uh, a lot of patients with complex epilepsy will be discussed in a multidisciplinary team meeting. So that's yeah. a, a big group meeting where you'd have the neurologist, the neurosurgeons, the radiologists, um, many other team members present to, to jointly come up with what's the best course of action or treatment plan for that patient. And, and what, how we see this potentially being used is that um, if a clinician is suspecting that perhaps there is this abnormality and that hasn't been seen, or they want to confirm, they think they might have seen something and they're not sure, they can run uh, this algorithm and and get a report back which will say where it's identified. And then um, what we're hoping is that it will either be able to help uh, diagnose more patients, it will speed up the diagnosis or provide um, confirmation for clinicians that it's the right diagnosis so that's how we're seeing it helping patients um, and their families so that hopefully more patients can can be offered surgery and have the option uh, have those options available it's going to speed up effective um, or accurate diagnosis is that right so I'm just thinking of um, clinicians that I've spoken to in the past for instance they we may have seen or they rather may have seen an EEG um, scan which was 
uh, it was a scan from like say a decade ago and it wasn't as high quality of high quality as it may have been today and so we may have like people who did not have a 100% accurate diagnosis a decade ago but should they use um your algorithm or that their clinician use your algorithm then they may actually get a more effective uh, or accurate rather should I say diagnosis so like the diagnosis could basically change from what a person has already received in the past correct yeah so there may be patients who whose scans have been reported as being normal and you could mm. analyze them now in light of these kinds of new technologies and say you know actually was there something subtle that was missed and um I think what you're what you're referring to is that um, they use so um, there are different uh, MRI scanners. So our, our work works using the input data that we use for our algorithm as, as MRI data, structural MRI data. And um, what a lot of hospitals have is a particular type of scanner called a 1.5T scanner. Um, and more recently, a lot of hospitals have upgraded and now have a, a 3T, so a higher, uh, a stronger um, MRI like the latest yeah. iPhone, I guess. The best of the best that we've got so far. Exactly. And exactly like the cameras on phones have got better and better. The scan quality has got better and better. And and we intentionally wanted our algorithm to be able to not just work on the latest high quality data, but to also be able to run on some of the um uh, on some of the older scans because not every hospital has access to the latest iPhone and so that's exactly what we've done so our algorithm you could run it on data from from those from those older scanners or from the newer scanners that's really cool because like lots of you know hospitals can't afford to get a new fancier um, iPhone MRI so being able to use that this um, system uh, is going to prove very useful I imagine now can you tell us how, though, what your, your developments in your work is actually going to potentially benefit people with other neurological diseases other than epilepsy? So this type of framework, which where you analyse the um, MRI scans and we extract particular features from MRI scans, such as the thickness of the brain at, at different points or what the intensity is on the MRI scan or how the brain is folded, that, that type of um, analysis is very applicable to other neurological conditions. So, so for example, um, if you are analysing um, uh, patients with other, where there's one abnormality or that you're looking at specific areas of the brain, so things like you could look at it in strokes or um, in rare conditions in children, for example, you could look at it in um uh, oh well, a more common cause would be something like in multiple sclerosis. You could you could use this type of technology in, in MS to try and find brain abnormalities in in MS. What this technology ca- can look at is where you're expecting that there will be particular areas of the brain that might be affected and that might have an abnormality. This kind of te- um, algorithm could try and identify those areas, um, or, or using the same ideas, you could train an algorithm for your particular condition to find abnormalities. Alternatively, some of the more uh, general things that we do, for example, like we've created a an atlas of where this particular type of brain abnormality occurs in the brain. And what we found is that actually it's more common in certain areas and there are these hotspots and we can create, have this atlas and um, radiologists can, can use it to be able to search in more detail in particular areas of the brain if they're suspecting maybe they've missed something that might be there. And so for other neurological conditions, that type of thing where you create this atlas of where it commonly incurs in, in large numbers of patients um, could be very useful. Um, and I think that this is all really possible because of, you know, 
the way we've conducted our study is an open science approach. So any hospital can take part and we're very transparent with what analyses we're doing and try and make any tools or code that we develop openly available that people can use it. And I think that that kind of framework could be very applicable to lots of other neurological conditions where really the power is in big data, the power is in lots of lots and lots of patients and being able to um, harness um, information from, from, from many, many people. We have lots of people who unfortunately, for many reasons, can get a, a bit nervous about their data being used in uh, along with everybody else's. Can you reassure people how their, their data will be protected and they will not be able to be identified as, as the person whose data is being used, please? So you raise a really important point, which is about, you know, data protection and protecting patients. Um, and so in this first study, we actually we didn't even receive the MRI scans from from patients from their from their hospitals. What we what we trained is we trained the um, clinicians or researchers at every hospital to be able to run some code for us, which would extract particular features from their patients' MRI scans, such as the thickness of the brain, and it would then um, normalize it to this template but basically what it meant was we had no way of tracing it back to an individual patient it was we we received basically a big you can imagine it like a big excel spreadsheet which said you know at point one on the brain the thickness was this and at point two on the brain so there was absolutely no way we could link back to an individual or link back to an individual's brain we knew that a few basic information such as the age of the patient and the sex and how long they'd had epilepsy but we didn't know much more than that. So it was very, very heavily anonymized data. That's one way of protecting um, patients and patient data and their confidentiality. Um, in our next study, we are hoping to do to actually receive the MRI data, but there are different ways of protecting patients. So firstly, obviously, we don't use names or any identifiable information. So we just use a code to represent that patient. But we can also do techniques which which we can do, such as like defacing the MRI scans so that the Although we can see the brain structure, we can't see the faces of patients. And that is another form of helping to anonymize patient data. So we do lots of different uh, routes to make sure that we protect patients. And obviously also about thinking carefully about whether you, who can access the data and how it's stored safely. Right, because people get worried that we're going to have, say, big, you know, external corporations accessing this and they'll use the data to more effectively target us with their marketing or something. And I know that sounds a bit out there, but these are the thoughts of thoughts of people. Um, so it's, it's they need to sort of be reassured that that isn't going to happen. Definitely. I think firstly, it's, you know, it, it, it's important that researchers and, um, and ethics boards put in those protections to protect patients. But also we need to we need to talk to patients and we need to, to hear what yes. their concerns are. And so we've we've actually just applied for um, a public engagement grant to run a workshop with patients and their families for exactly that reason, to try and um to try and find out what their concerns are about data protection, what they want from this technology and how, how that balance of risk so that we can make sure our project um, is delivering what patients want and addresses their concerns. Mm. I just want to put it out there that personally, I really don't care like how much my data is used because I, I just, I've got nothing to hide, for instance. I know there are other people out there like myself, but just for perspective, I, you know, I'm not a criminal. And even if I was, I know that like my data, it, that for, you know, my health data is not going to, to my knowledge, be you know used as, as a way to report me for crimes for which I have not yet been, you know, prosecuted and, th and things like that. Um, 
but people do get a bit paranoid about it I think and how potentially for instance again this is going to sound random that people medical data could be then linked to their financial data and they could be robbed or something which sounds to me a bit like um, out there but oh gosh our brains work in mysterious ways <laughs> I think these these concerns that everyone has are, are, are extremely valid concerns and have to be addressed. And they're important. You know, they're big parts of our ethics applications for studies is, is talking about how we're going to protect data. So who will have access to it? So, for example, in our study, it's only the core research team. The data is kept on a secure um, academic research service. So there's no there's no access to for big companies to be able to access it. It's just our team of currently four four you know, a mixture of uh, clinicians and computer scientists who can actually analyze the data. But there are, you know, other people who will be able, who are, who are collaborating with us, who will be able to help us. But it, it is a very protected uh, way of um, of handling of handling data. And there are, but there are different approaches to how you how you handle data. There are also, you know, it depends again about what patients have consented to, or or whether their patient, or whether their data is being used anonymously. Um, so so. There are lots of different data protections. There are certain studies where patients have agreed for their MRI scans to be to be made openly available for the academic community to use. But those are those are different studies. And I think another great thing about using patient data is that it's going to benefit people in the future. So it might not necessarily benefit ourselves right now, but in the future. Well, without this data, we're kind of stuffed. Uh, things you need this data to be able to make predictions and make make these calculations to benefit people of the future and by future it could be the people of tomorrow like literally tomorrow but people in five ten years time exactly um you know what we want to be able to do is to be able to better diagnose types of epilepsy on mri scans we want to be able to better predict how patients are going to do for epilepsy surgery and what factors will influence whether patients become seizure free or not and, and, and to do that, we, you know, the way that that has been possible is through acquiring these large data sets. So um, we're really grateful to all the hospitals and all the patients and everyone who's taken part in the studies because it wouldn't be possible without them. First of all, if we have um, any patients who would, and families who would like to be involved or learn more about your work, what should they do? You can go on our website, the MELD Project website, to hear about the work. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, uh, and uh, I think uh, Tori's going to share a link to our Twitter page about the work. Um, and we are hopefully going to be running some um, public engagement um, workshops, and also then developing some like leaflets about the about about the project, uh, which is actually the aim of the of the workshop is to um, so that you can hear about how machine learning of MRI scan uh, in MRI scans might. Um, about the research and, and then stuff so yeah that's how you can get involved lovely um, and what about clinicians and academics who who would like to learn more is it the same thing just find you on twitter check out the website yeah exactly the same way really we are definitely recruiting hospitals to take part in our next studies so if there are any epilepsy surgery centers um who would like to take part in the in in, a, in the meld focal epilepsy project get in contact um it's yeah it's exciting to be part of it oh great the more the merrier i say That'd be fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sophie. And uh, yeah, and please update us in a few months time on where you are. It's great stuff. Thank you.
thank you very much. Yeah, absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.